HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by the Dairy Farm Families of Wisconsin, the Wisconsin Milk Marketing Board. Did you know that today Wisconsin produces more than 600 varieties, types, and styles of American, international style, and original cheese that win more awards than any other state or country? To learn more, visit eatwisconsincheese.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to the Grape Nation, your weekly wine journey. Our guest is Jasmine Hirsch of Hirsch Vineyards in Sonoma, California. We'll talk to Jasmine about Sonoma Coast Wines, Hirsch Vineyards, and the shift in wine styles. We'll also taste a 1999 William Selim Hirsch Pinot Noir from the Grape Nation Cellar for our weekly wine sip. Plus, Jasmine snuck in a couple of wines. I'm Sam Ben Ruby. Stay with us for the Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We bring wine to the people. Jasmine Hirsch was born into a fledgling wine family on the Sonoma Coast. She was schooled in Philly, traveled, worked abroad, lived in New York, and eventually came back to the family farm and winery, Hirsch Vineyards, taking on the sales and marketing responsibilities. In 2015, Jasmine was named general manager of the winery. Jasmine also founded In Pursuit of Balance with renowned sommelier and winemaker, Rajat Parr. Welcome to the show, Jasmine. Thank you, Sam. I'm excited to have you on the show. There's a lot to talk about. But before we get started, I want people to get to know a little about you. So let's talk about your journey in life and in wine that led you to where you are today. Well, um, <clears throat> my father had been uh, trying to get me to come work for him since even before I graduated from college. 
It's funny, I was going through some old files the other day, and I found his original offer letter to me from uh, from 2001 when I was graduating from, from UPenn in Philly, and uh, I should have taken that offer, because the offer I got in 08 when the uh, economy was tanking was not nearly so generous. You had to settle. <laughs> I had to settle. Right. But uh, I resisted uh, for, for seven years, um, and then... Uh, so quickly, what did yeah. you do in those seven years? Yeah, I, I lived in Europe for, for five of them. I worked... What was uh, the compulsion to go to Europe? Well, I, I spent my junior year of college abroad in Japan, and I love living abroad, and I wanted to go abroad again, um, but I wanted to do something different than Asia, and my stepmom is from the Czech Republic, so she said, you know, why don't, you know, why don't I introduce you to some people, you know, kind of help you get established over there, and maybe you can do something interesting, and so I, I, I took, took her advice and her help, and I moved to Prague after college actually right after 9-11, and uh, lived there, and then lived in Amsterdam for a couple of years, and then I moved back, uh, actually, to New York uh, in 2006. So worked and lived, paid, yeah. paid your way yeah. through there? Yeah, yeah. What type of stuff were you doing there? I worked for a company in the Czech Republic that, uh, you know, was the largest historical um, damage remediation company in, in the Czech Republic. So they did all kinds of conservation things. All the beautiful buildings that you see in Prague, uh, they worked on. But they were starting to expand outside of the Czech Republic, and they needed, a, you know, an English speaker and someone who could travel easily and, you know, all so that So you didn't study that in school, and you wound no. up in wine. So, all right, that makes sense. And, I, I you know, I didn't study wine. I didn't Study, right. You know, any any of that. But uh, just kind of followed the, you know, my dad likes to say, I don't know where I'm going, but I'm on the path. So um, naturally, after five years, you said it was time to pack up and go back. Yeah, time to come home. And you were ready to go back to California to the... Well, I, I, I didn't, when I left Amsterdam, I was um, living with a, my Dutch boyfriend at the time, and we decided to... That you met abroad? Yes, that I met in Amsterdam. And he came... He came with me, and we decided on New York because it was sort of in between right. our two homes. And right. so I worked in finance for a couple of years. Um, I really, um, I learned a lot, I will say, but I uh, just didn't... I don't think I found exactly the right the right job, the right place, and I was really pretty miserable. And how uh, long were you in Manhattan? Two, yes, for two years. Two and, years. And so that were was you also with this guy for two years. Yes. Yeah. You yeah. didn't like ditch him after eight months. <laughs> no. Oh, okay. <laughs> Move him all the way across the Atlantic right. Ocean now, and then ditch him. But uh, I, you know, Amsterdam and Prague, neither of them are serious wine cultures, although, of course, the Netherlands is, you know, historically, you know, they've been drinking wine for, for right. centuries, but neither are really wine-centric places, and so I didn't, I mean, I drank wine, of course, but it's it's sort of amazing to think and sort of disappointing that, you know, I lived in Europe for five years, and I, I did hardly any wine tourism. Right. I, I regret that. It wasn't um, because, in your sights. I know, but it was, like, right there, and so I now know. it's like... Missed it's opportunity. Missed opportunity, but, yeah. it, but it, wasn't, it wasn't what I was into at that time, and but then when I... So it was when I moved back to New York, and, you know, my father you know, his wines had become more well known here in the city. And I started to meet people. Actually, my father has a second or third cousin who's very good friends with Michael Skernick. And my father said to this cousin, you know, my daughter's moving to the city, you know, look out for her. And, you know, if you can invite her some things. And so he invited me to some wine drinking gatherings. That, so you that, got your toe in the Yeah, water. I got my toe in the water. I started to taste old wine, you know, which of course I'd had with my father, but you know, not really appreciated. Was he bugging you? Like, when are you coming back? Come on back to the business? Or I, he was treading lightly? When when I lived in Europe, I think my father really respected that I 
was following my own path. Gave you your space. Yeah. He's an old hippie. Yeah. Yeah. And he really believes that our job on this planet is to become our true selves. So, um, but you know, I started to go out and to meet all these amazing people in the wine business and you took advantage of New York versus being in Europe. Yeah. And, and, um, all the wine, food, people, absolutely. All the amazing restaurants in the city, the amazing wine professionals. Two years go by and what happens? It's yeah. You know, I'm bitching about my terrible job and (laughs) to, to, to Bernie son, who at the time was the uh, wine director for all of Jean George's restaurants, and Bernie said, "You know, quit complaining. Go work for your dad. Right? You love food and wine. He appreciated. He saw what it. What was behind? He it. saw. He saw what I couldn't see. And I said, Oh, Bernie, I can't go work for my dad. That's like nepotism. That's dumb.' And Bernie said, "Go work for your dad. He's doing something amazing. You'd actually have an opportunity to really contribute. And you know, at that time, I think I was." I was 29. I had, you know, started over when I came back to New York by starting. In, I started as an analyst at the age of 27. Everyone else, you know, who's sort of at that lowly level in, in, at a bank is, you know, just out of college. And I had started over, and, and you know, I didn't want to have to start all over all again. And so right. I took, I took the the nepotism thing. And, and did you need a <laughs> Did you need a guy like a Bernie son to tell you that something was happening with your dad, or you had a sense of that, or you weren't paying attention? I think that I think that we take our parents for granted. And, you know, my sister and I used to complain when we would go to restaurants with our dad. You know, somebody would come over and fawn all over him. We'd like, right. roll our eyes like this is, you know, oh, it's just dad. Right. What's with them? Yeah, like, whatever. But, you know, I think one of the most extraordinary things that has come to me through working with him for eight years is really appreciating what he's what he did, you know, Commitment, like passion. Yeah. I mean, you so know, let's, yeah, let's keep the chronology going. Yeah, so you yeah. leave New York. So August of 08, 08 and you go back before the harvest. Yeah. To yeah. Casadero to Casadero, which is two miles from the Sonoma coast in Sonoma County Correct. in California, where your dad purchased 1100 acres in the late seventies. Correct. Okay. So you go back and what happens when you get there? Well, I think, um, you know, the business had been growing. The winery had been growing. You know, we were a vineyard. You were there when there was a winery. When your dad started, he was just basically a farmer and a grower, right? So when I was growing up, you know, people often ask, what was it like to grow up in the wine business? Well, I didn't really grow up in the wine business. I grew up on a ranch that had vineyards. But my father didn't build the winery and start making wine until 2002, which was the year I had moved to to Europe. And, you know, my father was looking ahead to when he was going to have wine to sell, which is why he was trying to get me to come work for him at that time. Um, so, you know, when I moved back or started working for him in 08, um, the winery was, you know, you know, six vintages in and there was wine in the pipeline. I was selling 06s when I first started working for him and we had made a lot of wine in 06. There had been a big crop. And, um, and then of course the economy was, was tanking. Um, and so from, from 02 to when you got there, was he paying attention to marketing distribution or he was a farmer turned winemaker? Was it did he have things going or you came in and ratcheted it up? He had things going. I mean, the thing was that we had a disastrous vintage in 05 when we made less than a thousand cases of wine. Then in 06, we had what, a big, big what vintage. constitutes disastrous, the weather, the heat. 0.5 tons to the acre. But why did that happen? <laughs> it rained for five days straight. So the rain killed. Right in the middle of the bloom. The bloom. And it just destroyed so it just the bloom. just knocked the buds off yeah. and everything. Yeah. So um, when, and then in 06, we had a huge crop 
and 20 new acres came into production. So we went from making 1,000 cases of wine in one vintage to five or 6,000 cases. Wow. So my father had the winery, from a sales and marketing point of view, up and running, but, but he, you know, the distribution network was small, the mailing list was small. And my father's, you know, he, he, I, I do want to say he's not a winemaker. When he built the winery, he, he hired a winemaker, and we've always had a, a winemaker working, working for us and making the wines. Um, Does he stress a style? Like, was he the guy that... I mean, Hirsch is known for balanced, restrained wines compared to a lot of the other California Pinots. Was that his vision? I think my father is amazingly agnostic to style. He's okay. one of those wine drinkers, and they're out there, and, and I frankly find them quite impressive, who, have, who drink wines of many styles. You know, one night you can go over to his house and he'll be drinking Amarone. And the next night he'll Heavy. be drinking Chassagne Rouge right. that you could read a book through. It's so light and so so delicate. Um, he cares about authenticity. He cares about real wines from a real place made by real people. So that was his vision. Authenticity. That was his vision. Would you say terroir? I mean, he 100%. wanted to express the land. Hundred percent. Right? My okay. father fell in love with wine in Burgundy, and that's why he planted Pinot Noir. And he has a very Burgundian philosophy. He's not trying to make Burgundy at Hirsch. That would be, in fact, un-Burgundian. Right. Um, but the mindset and the way that we farm and, you know, the way that we think about the goal of the wines, the intention of what we're doing is very Burgundian. We want the wines to taste of the place. But, you know, when I started working for my father, I had just come off of two years of living in New York, drinking a lot of French wine, um, tasting some American wine, tasting our own wines, and kind of thinking, I don't really like these wines as much as I like these beautiful, transparent, um, you know, balanced, if you will, uh, burgundies. And there were some American wines. I mean, Litteri, Bon Climat, um, which resonated for me in that same way. But our wines were riper. My father... Uh, never made spoofilated wines. He never made wines. Explain to, what spoofilated is. You know, the wines have always been made with native yeast. There's never been additives. The the uh, you know you the extraction pushing the alcohol. Was, yeah, the extraction. Yeah, but you know, I would say that our wines between '02 and and through '08 were high thirteen percent, low fourteen percent. To use alcohol as a imperfect proxy for ripeness. Because I think, you know, as a farmer, and I've actually, to be honest, I've never talked about this with my father, so this is just my impression. But maybe as a farmer, he's sort of... Are you going to get in trouble for this? Well, I don't want to put words in his mouth. Okay. But I think, you know, there's an impulse to err on the side of ripeness. Just make sure it's ripe enough, the fruit. And, and, and you know, our winemaker, Ross Cobb, who we hired in 2010, you know, he said, you got to pick Pinot Noir when you almost feel like you're picking it too early you got to be on that razor's edge. And I think, you know, it, it it's took, a much more finicky grape. It, it's a much more finicky it's a grape. It's tougher grape to grow, goes, manage, vint, and all that. And it goes so quickly towards this homogenous, fruity beverage that is not the higher purpose of Pinot Noir. Pinot right. Noir is... Well, let, let's get to yeah, that. And yeah, there's a lot of yeah, that to talk about. Yeah. But let's finish your trail. So, oh, wait, you get to the winery... You go back with your dad. So there's that big stock market bust and all that. 
But what are you doing for the next few years? You're helping with sales and marketing. Sales and marketing. Uh, growing, traveling. Traveling, growing the distribution, growing the mailing list. So like an ambassador. Yeah. yeah. Director and of sales and marketing was my official. Was anyone doing role. that before? No. So no. you really got. My father. Right. You really got out there and touched a yeah. lot of people. You did that for how long? Um, I mean, I do it to this day because right. when. I took over running the winery. We didn't hire a, a new sales and marketing person. Um, so, And yeah. during that time, you're doing everything? I mean, during harvest, you're pitching in? and um, not, not in those first few years and not, not, in, not every year because we were so busy. With, we had so much wine to sell, and it was really difficult so to really sell wine. So it really pulled you away. Yeah, and, you know, people say, uh, you, know, uh, you know, isn't it easy to sell Hirsch because... The vineyard has a long history, and, and but there's so much good wine out there. You know, it's from both abroad and from the U.S., you know, with, with you know, the improvements in wine, wine science and wine technology and viticulture and maybe also with global warming. There's great wine coming from all over the world, and consumers are, you know, they're less loyal because they're more adventurous, which right. is not a bad thing at all. So, you know, it's, it's um, especially during the recession, it was just so effortful. And so um, I... You know, wish I could have been home all of September and October, but right. but you were. On but the I was road. on the road. So you yeah. do that for years, and then in 2015, I guess your dad looks at you and says you're doing something <laughs> right. He makes you general manager of the winery yeah. formally. Well, he had been trying to step away from the winery for a long time and just focus again on the vineyards, which is really his true passion. And Let's so, talk about him for a few yeah, minutes. Yeah, Here's a guy born in the Bronx, right? Yeah. In the apparel business. Yeah. I guess a Garmento yeah. from the Bronx. Goes out west. Does he go out west for business? No. He, uh, he went to Columbia, and he dropped out in the middle of his freshman or sophomore year. <laughs> his <laughs> parents he, must have been thrilled. Yeah. I, uh, I can't even imagine, you know. He I mean, heads out west. Yeah. He moved to Santa Cruz, to the Santa Cruz Mountains, and he started a business importing stuff from, you know, like the blankets from Oaxaca, like, you know, right. like you've got on that chair over there. Those kind of like, like hippie stuff. Head, head shop stuff. Totally. Right. And then he meets my mom, who has, you know, had, had a lifelong love of sewing and fashion, and, um, and they started a clothing business together. And um, they did that for they did that. But wait, did he when did he move to the property? So after he was living your in the Santa Cruz and... Mountains um, until 1980, I think. And uh, in 19, the, the late 70s, he realized that California was getting crowded, and that everybody was doing what he had done. Everyone was moving out west and that if he wanted to have a place where he could, you know, in his words, hear himself think he'd better hurry up and look for something before it all became too expensive. And so he started to look every day in the classified section of the San Francisco Chronicle um, and finally looking found... Looking for property. Looking for property. And he finally found this advertisement for an old sheep ranch. And he bought the property in 1978, but he didn't move up there full-time until the mid-'80s. So he, moved, he and my mom moved to San Francisco, I think, around 80. So he had the property for many years without living on it. Correct. He planted the first vines in 1980. Okay. Um, that was so he a, planted them while he was not living there? Correct. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, so he had a drinking buddy in the Santa Cruz Mountains, Jim Beauregard, whose son now makes wine under the Beauregard label. Okay. And Jim, um, and this is all from my dad, so 
this story, but Jim had been born into a family that owned some local supermarkets in Santa Cruz. And, uh, but he was a passionate amateur viticulturalist. And he and my dad would drink wine together. But, you know, he had to work in the, in the family supermarket business, so he couldn't follow his passion. But he came up to see my dad's new property. And the story goes that they were standing in the middle of the sheep pasture. And Jim said to my dad, if you plant Pinot Noir here, this will be a world-famous vineyard. And my dad said, whatever. Did and he Jim ever was, have designs for growing Well, Jim grapes? actually brought up the first cuttings and helped my dad. Jim inspired him to do all of that. Yeah. So yeah. it was about 1,100 acres? I mean, it was a pretty vast piece of property. It's about 1,000 acres because we, we sold a little bit to okay. our neighbor who um, moved there right at about the same time that my father bought the property. So what's planted through the years as of today? You have about 72 acres. Of Pinot? Four or? of those are Chardonnay. <laughs> okay. And the property is... A couple of miles from mm-hmm. the Sonoma Coast and the Pacific. Yes. So one last thing, and then we'll move forward. So now your dad's planting. You know, we move forward. You're at the winery. But, and I, I'm just curious about this. Your dad got into a fairly serious accident, a tractor accident. Yes. Right? Yeah. He was just working, tooling around on the tractor and... Building compost piles. <laughs> okay, and what, just fell or hit? Or? Uh, he was um, uh, crushed between the body of the tractor and the bucket of the tractor. Wow, serious. Yeah, very serious. He was in the hospital for a long time. He and was. Nearly died many, many times. Determined um, at some point to get the hell out of there and back on the farm. He's a very determined person. <laughs> and today he feels good and gets around. He's. Yeah, I mean, he has some... Um, Stiffness? Uh, no, no, he's paralyzed, so he can't walk. Okay. But, um, uh, but, you know, other than that. His spirit is great yeah, and all he's that. Very much amazing. involved. Yeah. Great. Absolutely. It's good to hear that. He's yeah. Like. All right, so let's talk about the vineyard. I mean, it's it's an interesting piece of property in the sense of time, you know, when you got out there and... You were one of the first in Sonoma to plant in that area. Place, you know, where it was, there was not a lot of other uh, wineries. Climate, you know, it had an interesting climate compared to other places, cooler. Let's talk about the property and, you know, the effect it's had on the wines and all of that. Yeah, so it's a, you know, it's a remarkable place, the what we call the true Sonoma Coast or the West Sonoma Coast. Um, the part that Hirsch Vineyards is in is uh, is called Fort Ross Sea View. That's um, the AVA. That's the AVA. We're in, we're when with, did it become an AVA? Oh, gosh. January of 2012, maybe 11? Oh, recently. It's very recent. So the Fort Ross Sea View AVA is, is fully incorpor- enclosed within the Sonoma Coast AVA. So we're in you know both AVAs. Right. Um, but the... It's, so it's a... There was the Sonoma Coast AVA, and then they created even a, a more micro-AVA. Yes, and I think that we'll see more of that. Um, the Sonoma Coast is an enormous AVA. It's not very meaningful from a viticultural point of view. Right. At some points, it goes 40 miles from the coast. We're two miles from the coast. You can see the ocean on a clear day. It's a completely different climate 
and growing situation than if you're, you know, even 10 miles from the coast, right. let alone 40. So, um, so I that's think, the place. I mean, that, yeah, that particular area is unique in the sense it's of... It's totally unique. It's totally unique because it's both close to the ocean, high elevation. Um, we, we get some of the highest rainfall um, in California, um, certainly on the coast. Uh, for is that a CVS. positive, a negative, or a neutral for growing wine? It's I mean, a reality. It would be you, a better you, way to you say You manage it. it. We, you know, it's a reality of... of where we are, it definitely can promote excessive vigor. And so you've got to work with that viticulturally um, in terms of how you handle your canopy management and things like that. But it's just the nature of the place. And, um, you know, the, the, the last thing I would say about Fort Ross Seaview is it's, it's, you know, and this is actually true of the whole coast of California, um, it, you know, we're incredibly close to the San Andreas Fault. Right. So close to the fault, high elevation, high rainfall, incredibly steep slopes, and close to the ocean. Does the being close to the fault affect the type of soil? Yes. Do they yes. vary? Hundred percent. Yeah. Do they vary on your property? Yes. Yeah. So there's 68 acres of Pinot Noir, but 60, six zero farming parcels. Each of those parcels is unique in terms of its. Um, combination of soil type so you're saying aspect. 60 different parcels correct yeah wow. so it's super micro farming and super micro winemaking and that is the response that my father has developed over 35 years of farming there to manage the complexity that's been imparted to the site by the san andreas fault he would say that even the, the climate is driven by the san andreas fault and that's because the the fault created the coastal ridges that run right. north south and the ridges you know what ridge you're on from the coast determines how much fog you'll get because the ridges block the fog. So, you know, being two miles from the ocean, second ridge in, we get a tremendous amount of fog. You know, five miles inland, you've got another ridge or two in between you and the ocean, so it can be much warmer. What kind of temperature swings? Like during the day, in the summer, it could be what temperature, and at night it could go down to with the fog? You know, it's, it's interesting because we, the diurnal shift is not as big as it is someplace like Russian River where it gets a lot warmer during the day. It's not that day. crazy. And then, you know, the fog comes in on the river, so it gets really cold at night. Um, but, you know, in the, in the summertime, I mean, we can have cold nights. It can get into the 40s at night, um, and it can be hot during the day. I mean, there, there's times when the wind turns around and comes from right. inland, and, you know, it has a gotten up breeze. to 100 there, but right. it's rare. It's really rare. One last climate question. So during the proclaimed California droughts, yeah. was it always rainy there or you felt? Well, I mean, there's definitely, we felt the drought. The vines were stressed in a way that um, 100% indicated drought stress. Um, but we got more rain than a lot of folks in California, and we're really lucky for that. Um, but we felt the drought for sure. Right. Yeah. All right. So we, we talked about the property, which is amazing and unique, and you were one of the first in in that sense. So you have the property. What's the philosophy and the goal in the type of wines that you want to make? Yeah. You, you alluded to it before, but yeah. get into it. Yeah. Well, you know, 08 was such an interesting vintage. It was my first vintage working for the winery. I was kind of coming off. You know, as I said, drinking all these, all these burgundies and, you know, young and stupid and opinionated and kind of, you know, not <laughs> understanding why we're making, you know, these riper wines and, you know, never like over the top, but, but, you know, riper than I was enjoying at the time. Right. And, 
Um, and so 08 was this interesting vintage. Number one, we had, there were forest fires, so, you know, all the wines were smoky. So, you know, we declassified all the wines and we didn't make any of our top wines. But besides that, it was a really hot year. And um, so the fact that there's a fire actually creates an effect on the grape it was that makes it smoky. Extraordinary, Sam. I because mean, literally the yeah. skins get smoke on them, and when no, you go, you know, what happens? Plants trans, you know, they 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 breathe is not the right word, but there's an exchange of oxygen, right? right? So exchange of or exchange of you know whatever they're using from the air, CO two, whatever. So there were forest fires up in Mendocino, and the wind was such during the growing season that the the smoke was was coming down the coast and there were something like two weeks during july and august when the vineyards were just sitting in in smoke and all the wines tasted smoky but but more than that the wines were all really ripe and you know we have all these little parcels and we harvest and make each of them into their own wine and then when you go through after making the wine and you taste them all and they all taste the same you're kind of like why what am i doing why am i doing this and you know i know they're all different they look different. The soil's different. They they respond differently to farming inputs. But what am I doing in the winemaking? Because picking, when you pick, is a winemaking decision. What am I doing in the winemaking that's homogenizing the wines? I don't think that we had that conversation in our heads or amongst ourselves that I just relayed. But I have come to realize that, for me, the biggest problem with excessive ripeness is that it homogenizes. And wine is all about difference. Wine is all about individuality and and you, you know that's true of the world of wine and it's true of pinot noir in the sense that pinot noir is this incredible vehicle to express place it's right. it's it's why it's one of the greatest does pinot noir do pinot noir grapes express the terroir more than other grapes or you can't isolate that grape? i think it's an is it more finicky and I think it's an acknowledged um, thing in the in the wine world that there are certain grapes that are incredible, you know, as I said, vehicles for terroir. I mean, Chardonnay is 100% that, although it's also an incredible vehicle for the ego of a winemaker. It's like one of the most manipulable grapes. Right. But Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, Nebbiolo, Chenin Blanc, uh, you know, and uh, there's others, right? Riesling, I mean, Jesus, Riesling is... So there are certain grapes that have this truly magical ability to transmit the the soil and the the climate and the you know the the specificity of the place where they're grown into your glass, and so um, you know if that's the case, and you know we're winemakers that are deeply passionate about Pinot Noir, and you know that is the higher goal to make a Pinot Noir that expresses where it comes from. Assuming that place is the place it comes from is interesting, right? Which is well, not we, a given. We know that, but was there a, a time, did the light go off where the style, the realization after of, 08, after yeah. 08, you realized this is what we have. This is what we want to do. And it became more consistent that style. So after 08, I said to my father, can we try to pick a little earlier? and uh, see what happens. And can I take over the fruit sampling, the sampling that we do in the vineyard that drives so much of our picking decisions? Um, because I felt that that had kind of failed in 08 and that the numbers that we were thought we were picking at were not what we saw. In the, you know, and there's a lot of things that affect that. But anyways, my father, I think, you know, it was a blessing. 08 was a blessing in disguise because it was a wake-up call. Right. You know, they, the wines were so ripe that, you know, he, my father was like, oh, well, this is not what Your we want. Your gut was right, though. You yeah. made the right call. 
or well, moved in the right direction? It was, um, you know, it was something that we did as a team and as a family, and our, you know, and our at the time we were still working with our first winemaker, Mark Doherty, who's a great, great winemaker, and um, and he was on board with picking some things earlier, and you know, we argued the picking decisions got a little ferocious in 09 but <laughs> but uh i you know i uh i was getting some very good advice from some friends that i had on speed dial and some winemaker friends and getting some advice about what to look for in the profile of the juice samples and 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 all of that and the numbers and um you know we 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 picked a lot of the lots um earlier in 09 and um you know john bonet says we have to stop saying earlier say we pick at the right time <laughs> but yeah and you know my it's father like, there's no cheap wine they're inexpensive yeah yeah right it's not yeah, early yeah. it's right it's right the right time, time. Yeah. and so you know i remember the first round of blending trials when we started to taste the 09s the finished 09s you know before we were you know as we were getting ready to put together the final wines and my father just said you know this is the future of of hirsch so these the, kinds of wines the the move and the change proved to be right and became the signature and hallmark of Hirsch wines. It allows for the sight to shine. I mean, wines still need to be delicious. You know, they have to have fruit. We don't want to make green wines. We don't want to make hard wines. We want to make wines that are delicious and, and charming and pretty, but they also... The higher purpose of what we're doing is to make wines that are transparent to place. Which I think is So a, the style serves the intention. This right. is why when you ask me about my dad and style, you know, he doesn't really care too much about... He doesn't care at all about the alcohol debate. You know, he was very proud of what we accomplished with In Pursuit of Balance, but he doesn't care about any of that. What he cares about is that we're making wines that express the potential of right. Hirsch. Which, which is a big deal. Um, we're talking to Jasmine Hirsch from Hirsch Vineyards. Um, I want to move forward and talk to you about something that was really an interesting part of your life, and that was the in pursuit of balance uh, idea, concept, and all of that. So first, set it up for me. IPOB was in, in pursuit of balance. It's... I don't know what you'd call it, an organization, a consortium, a group. Let's talk about that because it doesn't exist now, right? Correct. But I think it was a lightning rod and, (laughs) you know, for what, about five years? It really – so to tell our people what IPOB was and everything we've talked about, the type of wines, expression of terroir, all that, plays into IPOB. Yeah. So spend a few minutes with that. And Jasmine brought some wine here, and she's been blabbing so much, we haven't had a chance to drink it. So did you refill your glass? Yeah, with the second wine, with the Eastridge. Grab, right. grab yourself a glass Where, of that. Will you get that for me? It's, All right, so talk about IPOB. So, <clears throat> you know, IPOB came out of the same, uh, the same, the same time as the, uh, the same period of time as when I was going to work for my dad. Um, in, you know, 2008, I was, you know, back in California, and Raj and I were drinking wine together. How did you know Raj is Rajat Par? Rajat Par. Very yeah. prominent, prolific sommelier Correct. with the Michael Mina group originally out of San Francisco, yes. right? Also an author. A wine also a winemaker. Yeah. How did you meet him? Yeah. So uh, my father introduced us okay. at the Palais in... Gosh, San Francisco or New York, Paulie? 
We met at the New York Palais for the first time, and I want to say it was like 2003 or four. Okay. It was when I was living in Europe, and I came back to visit, and my father and his wife met me in New York, and they took me to the Palais, which was really wonderful. And Raj was there, and I met him then. Um, but we really reconnected in '08 when I um, came back to came back to this came back to the California, and so we were drinking, you know, a lot of wine together. I was learning from him, and you know, he's one of the foremost um, expert is, is such a word to, that doesn't capture it, but foremost passionates about Burgundy and and really holds. He's got the Zen. He holds the matrix of Burgundy right. in his matrix, mind. And it's, it's really extraordinary to yeah. go with him to Burgundy or to drink Burgundy with him. And he was also starting to make his own wines around then. And, um, you know, and he knew my father really well and he knew our wines really well. And he was really, he was one of those people that I had on speed dial that was, you know, helping me understand where, what was possible in, with our wines and with California wines in general as I was trying to, move us in a different direction in regards to ripeness at Hirsch. So, you know, I said, you know, why are there no wines in California like this great Burgundy that we're drinking or whatever? And he was like, well, there is. I mean, I, you know, and I mentioned some of them earlier. There's Litterai, there's a Bon Climat, and, and there were a lot of others that were starting around Viola. that time. Yeah, exactly. And, and so, so um, you know, we had this idea, well, why don't we get all of these people together in a room, all of these winemakers together in a room? They're all kind of pursuing this style that you know this 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 intention that is not getting any attention from the media in particular and this was and, what year well we started the conversation in 08 the and first ipob was in 2011 okay so three yeah. years of pushing the idea around contacting yeah. people yeah, organizing talking about it and and finally we said you know let's 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 do this let's get everybody together So let's talk about and yeah. I don't mean to interrupt no, please. but 2011 you decide let's make this thing physical you determine you're going to have a bunch of wineries I guess at a tasting what's the process for determining those wineries <laughs> A cocktail napkin at RN74 one night. <laughs> so your likings, this guy's good. This it was totally casual. casual. There was no system. And and that was one of the things that we got a lot of criticism for. So And it was a valid process. criticism. There, the there process, was no process. So I'm curious yeah. about, which is So we fine. changed that. We changed Where, that. Where's the rule? But well, I'm, we changed that. You know, because when it started, it was... Um, it was like, let's just get together. Let's share our wines. Let's share ideas. Let's invite people that are interested in this. I'm and curious about the invitation. So you decide, g- give me a winery. Is Fiella one of them? Uh, Fela was one. Uh, Lioko, so Ceritas. You, 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 yeah. you contact Matt at Lioko and you say, what? Hey, listen, let me hear what the pitch is. Gosh, it would be great to dig out that email. But, you know, we had talked to a lot of people about it and everybody was super into it because, you know, we're all small wineries, you know, um, and, 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 you know, none of us have... Most of us, I would say, don't have, you know, big PR budgets or marketing right. budgets or anything like that. So, so it's a cool consortium idea. Well, it was like together we can do more, right? If we pool our resources, if we pool our brands, we can get more attention and get people to, you know, to attend the event and all that kind of thing. And so people were, you know, the wineries were super into it. They got it immediately. I was going to ask, anyone yeah. that you put on the napkin that you asked, nobody backed off. Everybody. There was pretty, one winery that declined to participate. nothing. Yeah, to, yeah, they didn't feel that they had enough wine all right, to support So now it. the concept yeah. is you have a bunch of wineries that express... Finish the sentence. I mean, 
This was another one of the things that got people really fired up about IPOB, you know, that express. Well, let's and explain, I'm doing air co- quotes. Balance. Let's explain why people got fired up, because the traditional type of wines and the big wine companies were making a bigger, less restrained, more fruit bomby wine. And you were more into expressing the terroir balance. And that wasn't what the majority was. So you literally took shit from the mainstream, in a sense. Yeah, I mean, I'd say that's right. I think I think there were some valid criticisms. You know, at first, we changed this and we created, a, I think, a more um, democratic system for deciding which wineries the were invited. Evolved. But yeah, but um, but you know, the the the, the criteria, so called wines of balance, is so subjective and people said you know first of all who are you guys to decide what's balance but where's the rules that it couldn't be you guys well and also you know i'd say uh i'd say the real i think the reason people got so upset was because it was a they saw it as a criticism although we really tried to and I think we did a good job at really always keeping it positive. We never said, these are the wines that are not balanced. These right. are the wines that you we don't like. You stayed in your mission. Yeah, we stayed in our mission and we celebrated the wines and the people and the ideas that we believed in. But most of the criticism was mainstream press. And, and other wineries. Yeah. And other wineries. I mean, you, like you yeah. said, you stayed in your box, yeah. did your own thing. Here's our idea of this. Taste yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. And you know what? Like, wine is, wine is so deeply personal. If you want to drink super ripe, jammy Pinot Noir, God gave God you one you. liver, go for it. It's your liver to do what do you will with. We only have one liver? Unfortunately, he okay. gave us two kidneys. I don't know what he was thinking. I'd rather have two livers. Damn. but uh, <laughs> I need two, two livers and one kidney. I know, I'll right? I'll pee less, but I go know, on. Right? But, um, you know, and I, I think that people felt that we were telling them what they should like and what they should drink and... Um, and I never want to do that. I mean, I, I, I want to tell people to... That wasn't the intent. It wasn't but the intent. push all that aside. The critics that knew what you were doing, the consumers, the retail, the sommeliers, I mean, they all bought in, right? Well, the truth is, there was a real, and there is a real movement around the world and in California to make wines that are different from those that became dominant in the 90s and 2000s, the whole movement around natural wine to move away from over-industrialized wines, the whole movement to make wines that are hyper-specific to a place, to a winery, you know, this is what people are craving now. They're right. craving authenticity. They're craving small batch products that feel handmade, that feel true, that are made with heart. And, you know, I think that doesn't mean that the wine, wine can be those things and not, not be what I considered, consider balanced Pinot Noir. I, I mean, that's why I, I admire my father and his drinking habits so much that for him, it, style is not so important. It's that the wine be real. Right. And that that's it really made the, with, the end with integrity. And for. yeah. So you did IPOB. For about five years, yeah, it, you, you did an organized walk around tasting in San Francisco and New York and back and forth. And we the, did Tokyo and Osaka and the London. The amount of wineries and, that participated yeah, grew. Houston, we went all we went all over. Great, it was great. attendance. 
great attendance. Great press. Um, great press. Even the negative press was, you know, made people wonder, wait, what is this? Why, right. why is so-and-so so upset about this? The mission um, was accomplished, right? Uh, yeah, you know, it's like the mission makes it sound like Raj and I knew what we were doing. We didn't know what no, we were no, doing. No, no, I didn't imply that. But, <laughs> no, but I what mean, eventually like, you I got think, out there, the point was made. Well, I think that the... Like I said, that there was this real thing. There is this real thing happening in California, and it's the winemakers that are driving it. It's the winemakers that are putting their financial necks on the line to make wine that is not the critically dominant style. And we gathered them together and and gave it a name that turned out to be really controversial. So that was maybe helpful, but... Um, and kind of created some, if you, you know, could like change you said, it, what, what would you say in pursuit I don't know. of terroir? <laughs> you know, balance. I guess in pursuit was a of. I hope I'm not offending you. <laughs> right. In pursuit of go screw yourself. In pursuit of sorry, I got sorry right. you got so upset. Um, no, you know, um, I think that it, you mentioned you said before it became a lightning rod. It, you know, it became something around which people could organize either for or against. It 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 was a useful thing in. In, in fomenting debate, the debate is not done, that people still don't agree, and they shouldn't. And you know, you know, the real thing that makes all of this possible is the emancipation of the American palate. You know, people now will drink what they love. They might care more what you say or what their buddy on, on Seller Tracker says or what Rajpar on Instagram has posted well, than they care a, what's in some, some magazine. And I so, want to talk about that because it's more democratized. It's more democratized. I want to talk to you about social media, but let's close the chapter on uh, In Pursuit of Balance. So it runs a good course. A lot happens in between. You decide to continue or to end. Well, Raj and I decided last year in 2016 that uh, we had done, the organization had done and gone where it could and, you know, IPOB was a nonprofit, and so, um, you know, and we really only accepted members that we really, really believed, you know, that the committee, that the tasting committee that we established really believed belonged there. And so there was always a limit to, you know, the potential income. And so Raj and I did so much work on on it. And it was just really, um, you know, there's a lot of other things that he and I want to do. And we all, we also have our own businesses. And um, and we also just felt, you know, we, we it was never intended to be this ongoing right. Entity. It was never intended to be a marketing entity, although, you know, that was, and it was so funny, that was one of the criticisms we received. Oh, it's just marketing. It's like, well, well, yeah, what's wines of Germany? What's wines of Spain? You yeah, know, that was never the intention. I, I, it well, and it's also that. like, what's wrong with marketing? I mean, yeah. you know, um, we, we believe in our wines. We, we want to tell you about them. That's marketing. Um, but anyway, so we just said, you know, I think let's, you know, we, let's, let's end it with intentionality. Let's end it right. So we, we told the members that we were going to end it. and um, Last year, 2016, yeah, was the last yeah. tasting. And so we decided we had done um, some events, um, you know, at the beginning of the year, which was our normal thing. But we said, you know, as we're closing, let's do one last event in San Francisco where we got started. So we did our last tasting in November, and we went back to where we started. Just this past November. Just this past nice. November. We got started at, at Raj's restaurant, Michael Mina's restaurant, RN74. And so we ended there. And um, The vibe was good. The Everybody vibe was felt great. good about All it. the people that supported us, you know, over the years was an opportunity for us to say thank you to them. And to, we threw a great party at the end. <laughs> so, Glad you did it, right? It was good. It was good. All right, so we're talking to Jasmine Hirsch from Hirsch Vineyards in California. I want to talk to Jasmine about social media, and then we're going to take a break 
and we're going to submit Jasmine to our wine list, and then we're going to taste a few wines. So before we break, I want to talk to you because I think you're pretty involved on the effect social media has had in the wine world and what effect it's had with you and Hirsch um, and how you use it. So talk to me about social media because I would say that you're a more active, savvy user than most. So tell me how social media is important. Well, I think that... You know, we're, we're, our vineyard's in the middle of nowhere. It's <laughs> difficult to get to. Um, we're close to the public, so, um, you know, we don't, we're not able to, um, you know, not everyone's able to come to the vineyard. And um, I, I'm also, you know, as I mentioned, I, you know, I can only be in one place at a time, as, as is true for all of us. And so social media becomes a way to connect with people and share the vineyard with them and share the wines and share you know, an idea of the good life and what I, the things I love and promote the restaurants and the wineries and the people that I admire and love. And, so you and see the opportunities. Because I, I see you post incredible pictures thank you. of the vineyard. I mean, yeah. I, I guess if you can get out there, you die. You know, if you, And even you're <laughs> in awe sometimes. It's like, can you believe this sunrise I, today? I asked my dad once, like, do you ever get used to it, how beautiful it is there? And he said, no. Now I'll look up and just be filled with gratitude that I get to. So social live media here. has given you an opportunity to take that slice of the world and yeah. share it with yeah. everybody. And I love taking pictures. I'm not. Uh, I wish I knew more about it. I wish I, you know, took the time to pause and take like a photography class or something. But um, it gives me an excuse. Social media gives me an excuse to to leave my desk at. You know, I seven in the morning when the sun's coming up. And I the, think it's more about the content and the intent than the actual skill. Yeah, no, I mean, I none think of your you're pictures right. are blurry or off tilt. But I, you know, the fact yeah. that you do that is yeah. important. Yeah, and I, I really love the visual aspect of it. And, um, and like I, while you're in New York, you've been on a restaurant tear. So yeah, you've been sharing that. Yeah, which is what you've been up to lately. Well, and life. people will and say didn't to me, you do a an industry pouring or a distributor pouring while you were here? Yeah, our distributor had a tasting yesterday, right. which was awesome. And um, But, you know, I mean, I think social media, people say to me, you know, I meet someone, you know, or have a client and, you know, I was just in Birmingham, Alabama, and, you know, they follow me on Facebook or Instagram and, and they see how much I dine in New York. And so when they go to New York, they, they say, Jasmine, can you send me a list? So it's also an opportunity for me to support the restaurants and the people that I think are doing great stuff. So this week, you know, being in New York... There's so many great new restaurants. Could only go to a few of them. There's only so many meals in the day, unfortunately. All but, right, so that that's but a I segue. I want to share those. You that's know? a segue because we Please. have a feature called the Wine List. And after the break, we're going to take a quick break. We're here with Jasmine Hirsch from Hirsch Vineyards. You're listening to the Grape Nation. We'll be back, and we're going to talk to Jasmine and ask her all our questions on the Wine List. <laughs> Today's program is brought to you by the Wisconsin Milk Marketing Board. Wisconsin produces the world's best cheese, period. Why? Lush grasslands, glacial water supply, fourth-generation cheesemakers, combining old-world tradition with the new ideas and highest standards. The very best milk. What do you think of when you think of Wisconsin cheese? 
For me, I think cheese curds. Delicious, fresh cheese curds. Or deep-fried cheese curds. Cheese curds literally any way, any time, any place. I think about Andy Hatch and Upland's Cheese Company. The operation behind the Pleasant Ridge Reserve cheese that's literally America's most awarded cheese. I think of the deliciously stinky Limburger and its long-storied history. I think about Raleigh's Dumbarton Blue, a perfect blend of English-style cheddar and notes of blue. I think of Emmy Roth's Grand Cru Chichois, which was named 2016's World Champion at the World Championship Cheese Contest. Wisconsin is like the world champion of cheese, and once you start reading the list of cheeses made in Wisconsin on their website, you can see why. The Wisconsin Milk Marketing Board is a nonprofit organization funded entirely by Wisconsin's dairy farm families. Read more at eatwisconsincheese.com. And as soon as you're done listening to this podcast, eat Wisconsin cheese. It's a no-brainer. All right, we're back with Jasmine Hirsch from Hirsch Vineyards. We're going to subject Jasmine to the wine list. Then we're going to crack open a vintage Hirsch Vineyard wine, plus Jasmine has a few other wines floating around that we'll talk about. All right, Jasmine, you have your seatbelt on? You ready? (laughs) Here's the wine list. Okay, first question. What are you drinking now? And I don't mean like today. What what do you find yourself drinking a lot of the same thing in the last week, month? Chenin Blanc and Syrah. All right, so you've been hanging around Pascaline too much on the <laughs> Chenin. All right, that's a good choice. What what kind of Syrahs? Rhones, Californias? California, Northern Rhone, uh, for the most part. Okay, tell me a couple of Californias without incriminating yourself that you like or... Wind Gap, Arnott Roberts, Pay, Fela. All great producers. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about your favorite wine and food pairing. What's something that you go back to that reoccurs? <laughs> That's so easy. The roast... Don't tell me champagne and oysters. No. I'll throw you out of here. The roast chicken at my favorite restaurant in the whole Zuni. world. <laughs> yes. And Zuni. Burgundy? Burgundy, maybe. What or, else? Or Northern Rhone Syrah. Okay. Yeah. You know, it's, I've been doing I this. mean, it's hard to go wrong with the Zuni chicken. You can drink anything. The best. I mean, you can drink white wine with it. It's great. I've been doing this show for about a half a year, and roast chicken and burgundy has come up three, four times. Roast chicken is a foil. Roast chicken is a delicious meal that, you know, if you prepare it simply, you can pair with almost anything. Right. And so Zuni, it's a classic rest, wine lover's Right, Food it's not pasta, and it's not a heavy beef. It's it's you could, it's diverse. All right, so we do a question: your favorite wine restaurant and/or bar. I'm gonna make you answer it two ways. I want you to give me a California answer, up and down the coast, and you've been in New York enough. I want you to give me a New York answer. So your favorite wine restaurant and/or bar, California, Republic. In Los Angeles, okay. helmed by Taylor Parsons on the wine side until very recently. Restaurant. It's a restaurant. And wine, great wine service. Extraordinary wine program, yeah. And we'll say, and, ama- and an amazing restaurant, amazing. And food. we'll say Zuni for food. 
Uh, no, I mean, you know, I, I feel like I can't say Zuni because it's it's I already gave that as an answer okay. for one thing. But I mean, Zuni's, you know, I can walk to it from my apartment in San Francisco. Okay. So and that's my home. That's like my living room when what I'm in San Francisco. What about New York? You know, it could be so from this trap trip or You're gonna favorite give me an- wine bar or restaurant, New York. You told me you were going to zoom through these. I mean, this is tough because it's like there's so many great places, you know. I. Um, You're not incriminating you know, one yourself because it's. Favorite places to sit and have a bottle of wine and, and a little food is the Nomad. Because I. I it's a great have a bar. Great, great. And there's so many different spaces in the hotel. And there's, you like the offerings? The list is good? It's amazing. Okay. It's amazing. Great choice. Favorite. To date, all-time wine. Oh. Was it that Burgundy, that Dujac? No. There's no... That's Give me impossible. a couple. Uh, 64 Salon for Champagne. Good call. Wow. Um, 64. Very, very sexy wine. Uh, I drank a bottle of wine with Johannes Leitz shortly after his Who mother. Who is Johannes Leitz? One of the greatest winemakers in Germany. Okay. Um, I had planned to go to Europe and on a, you know, kind of a vacation, and his mother passed away. And so I diverted from Portugal to go and see him. And um, we sat in the middle of the Kaiser Steinfeld's vineyard. 07 Kaiser is one of my favorite wines that he's ever made. And so he said, oh, let's go take the bicycles and eat a picnic and go up to Kaiser and drink Kaiser in the middle of the vineyard. He couldn't find Kaiser in the cellar. (laughs) So he grabbed something else, and I don't know what the wine was. was Um, But I sat with him in the middle of this vineyard on a beautiful day, and he told me about his mother. And these are the moments where... well, the wine's an, not important. Th- I was just going to say that's an answer of person, place, moment. That's Context. a great answer. Yeah. All right, here's a very tough question, especially for California people. And it's one of our favorite questions. Give me your best wine suggestion under 15 bucks. Give me a red and give me a white. And it could be anywhere. You know, it could be Europe, Spain. So I drank a wine last night. Uh, actually at Pascaline's restaurant at okay. Rouge Tomat. And if it's and a little over 15 I okay. saw it at a wine shop today. I saw it at Flatiron Wines, and I believe it was around 15 bucks. You got to tell me what it is. There is a producer, Invinate, which is an extraordinary... Spell it. E-N-V-I-N-A-T-E. It's a Jose Pastor Selections. That's the importer. And it's a group of passionate... Uh, people in Spain, three or four of them, I think. That's the red or the white? This is the red. red. And the, the, they, they make some more expensive wines, but they make a wine called Albahra, this beautiful floral, I'm probably pronouncing it wrong, A-L-B-A-H-R-A, and I literally just saw it on the shelf at Flatiron Wines in Manhattan. Um, it's such, it's it's a red wine that you can almost drink like a, I mean, you can chug it, but it's so pretty. Good call. Yeah. Now, I just want to tell you something. We had Ned and Brian from Grand Cru Selections on. Oh, cool. And they mentioned that wine. Oh, Brian, they did? Brian did. Ah, amazing. And the Ned couldn't come up with a red for 15 or less. Oh, yeah. Brian had to. <laughs> All right, so now let's talk about a good wine. Ben's sitting here. He's going to go to his friend's house, bring two bottles for dinner. They're serving seafood. What's he bringing white, 15 bucks or less? 
Oh, tough. I mean, I'm trying to think what I've had recently. That's in white that. is always the easiest one to everyone. Well, you know, I'm impressed. I you, love. You... Uh, I love. Let me think. Let me try to think of a. It's tough. Muscadet. <laughs> Muscadet. Oh, it can be a category. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> yeah, Muscadet. Let's go with Muscadet. Muscadet is a great. Great, uh, it's everyday it's wine. It's good and it's cheap. Yeah. Okay. It is. Yeah. You Thank you. Thank you for the, okay. the cheat. <laughs> All right. Last question. Are there a few wineries? Let's stay in California. Forget the price. I mean, this is a separate question. Are there a few wineries to keep an eye on in 2017? I mean, Hirsch for sure, but is the, are there any wineries that? Well, there are some new projects that are coming out that are quite interesting. Um, there's a project called Beta. Um, B-E-T-A? Yeah, that's, you know, starting to release wines, and um, those should be really, really compelling wines right. for people. I would start there. And, you know, I mean, I'm, I, you know, the usual, more. the usual suspects, though. I mean, I, I got to say, like, Wind Gap is just one of my favorite is wineries. Is that Raj? Wingap no, that's is uh, Pax, Pax. Mele. Right. And I just, you know, and he's always doing something new. So the winery's been around for the wh- a while. He's been making wine forever, but... Under uh, Pax, under which Pax. he sold. But Wingap's not that old. Well, no, no he actually didn't, didn't sell Pax. He has, he's making wine under the Pax label again. He is? Uh, and he has a couple labels. But he's always doing something new and interesting and different. And um, he makes... So pa- how do you pronounce his last name? Molly? Pax Maley. Pax Maley. Yeah. Wind Gap is one of his wines. Wind Gap's one of That's his wineries. That's a good call. Yeah, Keep an eye on yeah. him. All right. Those are good ones. You did a good job. <laughs> All right. So we're going to move to our final um, part of the show, and I'm glad to have Jasmine here for this. Every week we taste a different wine on air for our weekly wine sip this week and to toast Jasmine's appearance. We're tasting a vintage 1999 William Selim. So William Selim is the winemaker, but they contracted their grapes from the Hirsch Vineyard. It's a Pinot Noir. We pulled it out of the Grape Nation cellar. I think it was about 1,000 cases were made. It cost, when it came out, about 40 45 bucks at release. You could still get this wine if you look at places like Wine Searcher for about 75 80 bucks. Um, and is there anything else you want to add about this wine? The 1999. Okay. And I spoke to you about this earlier. This 99 William Selim Hirsch, you talked about 60 different micro lots and all that. Where did this particular wine come from? Describe where the grapes were pulled from. So this is mostly from blocks four and five, which are on the east side of our vineyard. Okay. And, you know, Given that we're right on the ocean, the, the west-facing vineyards tend to, of course, be cooler, uh, also more marginal. So the east-facing vineyards, especially the East Ridge, which is where most of the fruit in this wine came from, um, they, they're, they're, these vineyards are tucked back on the backside of the main ridge of Hirsch. So they're, they're, they're a little more protected from the ocean. Very steep back there. Um, the, the clonal selections of Pinot Noir are... Mount Eden, Martini, Pomard, Vadensville, so good diversity of California heritage clones. Um, and the vineyard is planted uh, on a rootstock called AXR that is uh, turned out to not be phylloxera resistant. So the vines have phylloxera. Now, in 99, they 
must have been, I mean, they were less than 10 years old, so the phylloxera wasn't very advanced. But now, you know, we've actually started to tear out some of that really? vineyard because the phylloxera is just, I mean, the vines are, you know, you know, over 25 years old now, and the phylloxera is just slowly killing them. Right. So um, it, very interesting, and, and we actually now make a wine at Hirsch under our, our estate label, Hirsch Vineyards, called Eastridge, which is we, we, from We have these, that in front of us which now. Which we're, we're drinking tonight, which which uh, which is from these parcels. And our winemaker, Ross Cobb, worked as an enologist at William Selliam. The first time he ever tasted Hirsch fruit was out of barrel at William Selliam. So he was very And so when he it. came to Hirsch, he said, I want to make a wine from that section of the vineyard. So, so that's... You All know. right, so let's, let's lift the glass. Let's take a look at it let's give it a sniff i could tell you right now um jasmine brought in two wines from the 2014 vintage this is the 99 it's definitely darker right is that from aging or is that my guess would be that that's winemaking right so it was a darker wine then so well you know 99 was the year that was a year after they sold William Selliam. Burt Williams and Ed Selliam sold the winery. Um, and the style changed a bit after they left. They, right. You know, they they but, were the guys. Yeah. Well, they also were very, you know, again, I mean, they were they were kind of the original. You know, the, the thing, thing, too, is like back in the, uh, you know, Burt and Ed made wines. Burt made wines like that can rival Burgundy, you know. Right. And, um and they're very elegant and, and balanced and, and delicious and all that kind of thing. Um, and the new owner, you know, made great wines, makes great wines, and at the same time definitely was going for a riper style. So I think the darkness of the color points to – because normally as wines get older, they get lighter. Right. Um, it, it, points it points to the to extraction the, and the ripeness. The change in style. Yeah. So, but the wine is, I mean, it's amazing. It's 99, and it's so color young and is, fresh. The color is ruby red. There's virtually no bricking on the edges, right? The nose is a teeny bit subdued, but I'm picking up raspberry. Well, tell me some of the nose descriptors you're getting. So I get, I mean, I definitely get something that I find is quite common in our wines as they get older or wines from the Hirsch Vineyards as they get older is, is bergamot which is what you get in um, English breakfast I was going to say there was a tea aspect to yeah, it and yeah. that's like a bergamot tea like a black tea. tea so there's the tea yeah. and the bergamot yeah and like you know I gotta say like um, for me I don't I, I quietly stopped writing tasting notes for our wines a few years ago. I don't believe in tasting notes. It's okay. And but, but what I do you believe ain't getting out of here but, without. But what I do believe in is, you know, there's there's a quality to a wine that is is can be described as the combination of the structure and the fruit and the mouthfeel and the oak and the acidity and and one thing I would say about this wine is it's so it's very complete. It's very. It, it, I'm impressed. Yeah. How complete it is, yeah. how fresh it is. Yeah. The mouthfeel, let's talk about the mouthfeel. It's sort of a lightish to medium, probably pushing a little more towards medium, right? Well, it's I got love, a nice mouthfeel. You know, it's you know, it's always it's very smooth. You know, I know we're not supposed to say that a wine is very smooth because it it's very it smooth and silly. sweet. Right? It's like it's like but it is. It's very of a piece. And my father always talks about, you know, you where's the middle in the wine? 
Is the, does the wine have middle? Does it have a beginning, a middle, and an end? And are all those pieces connected? And this wine, there's continuity on the palate. I agree. And I think that that's a real achievement. Let, let's talk about the palate. What? Give me some descriptors. I need more uh, wine. <laughs> I, I drank it all. Ben, pour it. <laughs> Jasmine's been just Jasmine's putting it been away. drinking a lot of wine. Tonight. I'm putting it away. Give me some uh, taste descriptors. Well, I mean, again, there's that cherry juice. There's a little bit of pomegranate juice. But not that overpowering California cherry cola juice. No. Nice cherry. Darker cherry. And there's definitely some earthiness in the wine. Um, There's a real purity to the wine, too. I mean, it's um, it's very pure. It's very on point. It's very focused. It is focused. And I just got cherry on the sort of the after the mid palate. I always ask everyone if this wine is holding up well. I think the whole time we've been tasting it, it's holding up well, and I'm very happy for that. If you gave me this wine blind, I would never guess 99. I would guess... Either would I. I mean, I would I'm guess so like happy. 09. Part of it is, I would guess 09. Part of it is provenance. I mean, I was, I'm on the mailing list, and the second it was delivered, it went sideways right. in my temperature-controlled right. cellar literally it hasn't moved. for 16 years. So yeah. I think that helps. But I think you have to go back to the wine. So we think this wine is holding up well. Let's tap into you and ask you what you would pair this wine with. So, what does this make me... You know, it makes me kind of think about lamb shanks. Okay, it could hold up to that. Oh, I little think so. gamey meat. I think so. Not, not too with, gamey, not too gamey. Well, but, lamb um, is not the gamiest meat. But, you know, it's also... It's very high acid. And so I'm also thinking of, like, you know, like a potato gratin that's creamy, that needs acid to cut through it. And that, with a piece of meat, um, I think this wine could be incredibly compelling. You're right. <clears throat> You're right. It has the chops for that. So I would say that we like this wine. We like this and wine. And I'm not saying we like it because it's a Hirsch. I'm saying because we know William Selim's a great winery, but it was the year of transition. It's an older wine. Sometimes California Pinots don't hold up. I think it's a testament to the source, the grapes Hirsch, the winemaking, and the provenance. I hope our wines, when they're this old, I think are so. holding up this well. All right, before I wrap up, you also brought in two other wines that we've been drinking. You brought in a Hirsch Vineyard Pinot Noir East Ridge 2014 and a Hirsch Vineyard Pinot Noir, I know I'm moving around, uh, West Ridge. So 2014, great vintage year, great right? Vintage. Good conditions. Yes. And the East Ridge and the West Ridge express the different plots and terroirs, right? So my father has always believed that we need to make a wine that expresses the whole vineyard, and and we make a wine called San Andreas, San Andreas Fault, named, of course, for the fault line, and that wine you can find out there in the world. I mean, it's it's available. It's more readily available. We make a little bit more of it because it has fruit. While we're on that, if you would like to think about getting Hirsch wines, you could contact them about getting on a mailing list or waiting list. What's the email address? Uh, info at hirschvineyards.com. Okay. 
Or you can go to our website. Right. And and there's so many great retailers. Uh, and restaurants. And restaurants. But you were saying the San Andreas is... So the San Andreas relevant. Fault is our... That's our flagship wine. And, you know, for my dad, it's it's so important that there be one wine that expresses the whole vineyard. And it has fruit from 30 of the 60 parcels. Oh, great. So you're really getting a whole picture of the vineyard. The three wines that we're tasting tonight, the William Selium, the Eastridge, and the Westridge, these are wines that are from very specific plots or selection of plots selection of blocks as we call them within the vineyard so the eastridge is from the blocks that mostly what is the william Selium, which is why i brought it and then the westridge is from the opposite side of the property it's from blocks six and seven which are on the western ridge cooler um and uh, a little bit more um you know restrained and and feminine wine um, so these are two wines that express vineyards within the Hirsch Vineyard, and whereas our San Andreas Pinot Noir expresses the whole vineyard. So, you know, as we've been now farming for 35-plus years and making wine for about almost 15 years, we have come to find these micro-terroirs right. within the bigger vineyard. I mean, it's more like a village in Burgundy than a single vineyard. Right. People Hirsch. don't realize how yeah. cut up the hectares exactly. in Burgundy are. All right. One of the words you mentioned earlier a few times was delicious. Mm. And I think delicious is a big deal wine word. And I think all the wines we tasted today were delicious. I think the William Selim, the 99, delicious, fresh. I think the both, both of the wines that you brought in, the East Ridge and the West Ridge, were delicious. Great vintage year. So we thank you for that. All right. We're going to wrap up the show. I thank you for coming on. If you have a question, a wine happening, or event, hit me up at sam at thegrapenation.com. That's sam at thegrapenation. Follow us on Facebook at The Grape Nation, Twitter at Ben Ruby, and Instagram at S. Ben Ruby. I want to thank our guest Jasmine Hirsch for coming in from Hirsch Vineyards in Sonoma, California. I want to thank our engineer Vitor and everyone at the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sam Ben Ruby, and you've been listening to The Grape Nation. We bring wine to the people. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.